The American dream encompasses the subject of today's episode. A young lady immigrated from Sweden in the 1950s. She learned the cosmetology business and became a successful entrepreneur due to her own strong work ethic. She was enjoying retirement when she met a wolf in sheep's clothing, which is when someone portrays to be someone good, but is not good at all. Today's episode will explore the financial and social devastation that can occur when an elderly victim entrusts the wrong person and becomes socially isolated due to the influence of the fraudster. Hello and welcome to Real Life Regulators, a podcast aimed at educating investors using real cases. This podcast is brought to you by the North American Securities Administrators Association, also known as NASA. I'm Nick Vondry, the Marketing Specialist for the Alabama Securities Commission, and I'll be serving as one of your hosts. And today, my co-host is Lynn Peters, Director of Communications, Financial Education and Outreach for the Washington State Department of Financial Institutions. And joining us today are representatives from the District of Columbia Department of Insurance, Securities, and Banking. Director Brian Bressman is the Director of Enforcement and Consumer Protection Division. Ms. Lila Blackstone is the Deputy General Counsel for the Office of General Counsel. And Mr. Mark Pendleton is a Fraud Investigator for the Enforcement and Consumer Protection Division. Brian, Lila, and Mark, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Before we get into the case, let's start off and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Brian, let's start with you. Sherlyn, um, I am the Director of the Enforcement and Consumer Protection Division of the District of Columbia Department of Insurance, Securities, and Banking, also known as DISB, D-I-S-B. I head up all investigations of financial fraud and violations of D-I-S-B's regulatory laws. Thank you very much. And Lila, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yes, yeah, hello. My name is Lila Blackstone. I am the Deputy General Counsel for the Department of Insurance, Securities, and Banking in the District of Columbia. I also handle the department's enforcement cases. I participate in investigations with Brian and Mark and litigate enforcement actions for violations of insurance, securities, and banking laws in the District of Columbia. I've worked on a number of high-profile cases in the past, including those related to securities fraud, research analyst conflicts of interest, Ponzi schemes, insurance fraud, and issues related to financial exploitation of senior citizens. Thank you very much. And Mark, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Good morning. This is Mark Pendleton. I investigate as a fraud investigator any and all allegations regarding the flaws under the uh, jurisdiction of the DISB. Uh, We look at allegations against individuals and persons that may have violated any DISB rule, regulation, law, or policy. Uh, prior to me working with the, as a fraud investigator with DISB, I'm a retired uh, federal law enforcement officer. I have 30 years with the federal U.S. Department of Justice, Office of Inspector General. On a criminal and civil side, this was the first time working with DISB. I've had any experience working on the regulatory side which is uh, very similar but different than the criminal side of uh, law enforcement. Okay, so um, the subject that we are discussing today is going to go by uh, Fred Hill and Miss Goldstein. For the privacy of the victims and the perpetrator in this particular case, the names have been changed. So 
Can you tell us a little bit, briefly describe uh, this case for us? Well, back in 2016, the Enforcement and Consumer Protection Division received a complaint in 2016. Uh, and the complaint came in in pretty routine fashion. It came in under the National Association of Insurance Commissions. We call it NAIC, and we are a member with the District of Columbia. This particular complaint came in twofold. First part of it was from NAIC advising that a financial advisor had violated his fiduciary responsibility with his client. Specifically, the client was victimized and lost a large sum of money. That was part A. Part B was a witness, an old friend of the victim, uh, who happened to be a prominent uh, trial attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., was a very close associate of the victim, and it was also reporting alleged violations against the financial advisor uh, insurance agent. So it was a twofold uh, allegation from the beginning, and it was our job to check it out to see what, what exactly what happened, and that's how the investigation actually begun. One footnote is the victim in this case, Mrs. Goldstein, unfortunately had passed at the time, so we couldn't or I couldn't speak to her directly for obvious reasons. So it made the case a little bit more uh, challenging because the victim was not alive at the time we received the complaint. Could you tell us what your office's involvement was at the outset during the investigation and during the trial? Which of you played what roles? Well, uh, ECPD basically received the complaint allegation. Uh, we did an extensive investigation that lasted over a year. Uh, we subpoenaed the victim's account. We subpoenaed, we have a subpoena authority on DISB has. Uh, we subpoenaed all the accounts we could financial in order to give us a picture of what actually happened. And we could see the flow of money moving between the victim and the subject. That's how we kind of got adjusted that something was amiss. Uh, the, the money was clearly moving and we could see that again, because we didn't have a victim, but we could see that the documentation showed that there, there was potentially a violation that had been occurred, had been occurring for over a period of time. So that's how it all started for us. Okay, so we can get a little bit of uh, background on uh, Fred. Where was he originally from? Was he from the D.C. area? Yeah, Fred was a, a local guy, yeah. And how would you describe, because most of your listeners, we all know what Washington, D.C. is, but not many people know what kind of community it provides for the residents of D.C. So can you kind of describe what it's like to actually live in the area of Washington, D.C.? I'm not a resident, but I think Brian is. D.C. is, uh, the district is broken up in, into eight different uh, wards. And everybody in the wards, uh, it's very interesting. People get to really know who live in their neighborhoods, their neighbors, they do favors for their neighbors, especially elderly neighbors or disabled neighbors, and they go into special. Uh, they go out of the way to take them shopping or go out to pharmacies uh, to pick up the medication if they need need it. Um, so everybody, it's a pretty close knit community. People know each other pretty well, with at least within their within their ward or even outside their ward, all across the district. It's a it's a it's a smaller. It's not like New York City. It's not like Los Angeles. It's it's uh, a very small, close knit community. And also geographically, I think the listeners probably need to understand that geographically, Washington D.C. sits 
uh, between Maryland and Virginia. And so you could be in some parts of Washington, D.C., and be closer to Maryland and or Virginia than you are to some other parts of the city. And in this particular instance, it's very uh, interesting because Mrs. Goldstein lived in sort of the upper northeast, northwest portion of the city. And uh, her Fred, the perpetrator in this particular case, was actually licensed in the district, but he lived in Maryland, which was still very close to her to her, even though she lived in the District of Columbia. And what was Fred's uh, profession? What did he do for a living? Initially, he started off as an insurance agent, and he progressed sometime later and got into uh, the sales or production of uh, securities, securities. And how long has he been in the insurance and in securities industry? Approximately 30 years. And how long with the current employer? Approximately 17. Would you say he was good at what he did? Was he a successful agent or broker? I would think he was highly successful. His income at the, uh, his income prior to being terminated by his uh, previous employer was somewhere between 150000 and 200000 a year. What was his work environment like? Was he in an office setting? Was he usually making house calls? Did he have a manager or coworkers? All the above. He could work from his home, and he did have a, a like I guess, a centralized or regional office. But he he basically did it all. He, he worked from the office, worked from home, and he did a lot of home visits to his uh, clientele, which was all over the DMV, the Washington, Maryland, and Virginia. So, what type of products? Did he sell like what types of insurance did he do like life insurance, home, auto, uh, and even like the securities? What kind of securities did he like specialize in? He was licensed to sell any insurance that was open market. In other words, he could sell home insurance, car insurance, vehicle, home life. Uh, he could do retirement annuities, casualty, whatever, whatever company or companies he dealt with. And he dealt with several different companies. That's what made him rather unique. He he kind of spread his uh, knowledge and wealth throughout various companies in the area. So how did he generate business? Was he given leads? Did he do cold calls? Did he have referrals from others? I think most of his was referral. Most insurance businesses usually are referral cold, cold calls. And I he, look at Fred as a very personalized guy. He was the kind of guy to get the gab. He can talk. He could relate, and he had a great personality where he could draw people to him very quickly. You had mentioned earlier that he was um, he volunteered as a softball softball coach, but really, did he do anything extra to really get his name or to promote himself within the community to um, garner his reputation? Well, he did uh, outreach programs. Yeah, I know he went to, in this case, he, he met uh, Miss Goldstein at a local Jewish community center. And obviously she wasn't the only one there. So he's, he uses uh, that type format, either a church or a community center or, or other ways to basically uh, advertise his uh, product and hopefully to obtain some sales. So the victim we're talking about that we're discussing today is Louise Goldstein. Can you tell us a little bit about her and her background? Yes. 
she was a uh, 89 year old Swedish born. Uh, came to this country, uh, worked very very hard. She was believed to be uh, very frugal. Uh, she owned her own beautician business for many 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 years in the district, and basically she was doing very well. Uh, just just enjoying her life at her age group. Do you know uh, what led her to come to the states? Why did she leave uh, Sweden? Um, it, what we learned from the uh, testimony at trial is that um, she actually ended up coming to the United States back in the late 50s. She initially came to the United States for the first time. She came to New York uh, with her sisters and brothers and uh, who were here before then, before that time. And ultimately, she ended up staying. So she was actually in the United States from the late 50s. And then in the 60s is when she came down to the Washington, D.C. area. She came down to the Washington, D.C. area after uh, meeting a gentleman in New York who was a hairdresser. And he sort of taught her the tricks of the trade. And she agreed to come down to the Washington, D.C. area and become a hairstylist with him. And so if you think about that, from the 60s on, she was a hairstylist and ultimately ended up owning her own uh, hair salon, which was very, very significant for women uh, at that time. What was her husband like? Her husband actually um, had died in the 60s. Um, It's unclear exactly sort of how or when they met, but she was married, and he died sometime in the 60s. And she, she was never, a widow from like sixty five on. So the wow. time she got to Washington D.C., she was a she was a widow. And so, did she ever date anybody serious, or ever have like another long term companion after her husband died? She did not. And she also she never had any children either, did she? Ultimately, her and her husband never had any children. Um, the the backstory is that he may have had an alcohol problem that led to his demise. Gotcha. When did she retire? I think she retired in the in the somewhere in the early in the nineties. She retired at sixty five, and I think she was sixty five in nineteen ninety. So she retired some time ago. And when did she pass away? 2015. So she enjoyed 25 years of retirement. That's remarkable. Yes, it is. Did she have? Did she have any other family? Yes, in Sweden. Going back to what Lila said earlier, she's from Sweden, and that's where her elder sister still lived in a uh, nursing home. Her health was kind of poor, but that's where she was. Her other brothers and sister had passed away. So by the time we had received the case, she only had one living sibling alive, which was um, her sister in Sweden. You mentioned that she was very frugal um, and to have 25 years retirement. Um, tell us about a little bit about how she was living after retirement, what her sources of income were. Her primary source of income was uh, her annuities. She was also 65 and old. She qualified for uh, Medicare and Social Security. Uh, she lived in her residence uh, up in the Northwest for 50 years, which was a co-op apartment. 
And I, and I think they had rent control. Well, I know they had rent control way back then. So her rent was very, very modest, okay? And she'd lived there for 50 years. So her expenses were minimal. And as I said, she was frugal. She was in basically good health. She could get around and do and was very independent. So she lived pretty comfortable for many, many years. How did they meet? They met through a third party. Uh, Fred was an insurance agent for a mutual friend, and the mutual friend recommended Fred to Miss Goldstein. In fact, the friend was a client, uh, a hairstylist client. So she did her hair. So she was a friend of Miss Goldstein, who she had done her hair for quite some time. You had just mentioned that she was able to live in retirement um, from living off of her annuities. Did Fred, did he, was he the one that sold her the annuities? Yes. Okay. And what was he selling her besides just what type of annuities was it? They were primarily fixed annuities, so she would get X amount of dollars over a long extended period of time, which would be safe for any you know anyone senior. That's what they would need or require, a fixed, consistent income over a period of years. So this was a, a suitable investment for her then? Yes, it was. Initially. Well, when did, uh, in your opinion, when did the relationship take a turn? When did he start, uh, stop having his client's best interest in mind? Early 2014, he starts to do all of these things that we can actually see physically. We can see on paper that he removed this, her sister as a beneficiary from her life insurance. Um, he starts to isolate her friends from seeing her. He, he, she gets moved to a facility um, that's, that's, that's a nursing home, which is fine. But then he's, he's the one who gets to say who gets to call or not. So our expert witness looked at all of this information, and what ultimately what he uh, concluded was that he sort of concluded that Mrs. Goldstein was the victim of undue influence by Fred, and ultimately that resulted in financial exploitation as it relates to all these other things that were happening. So just to give you a sort of a bigger picture of sort of when things started to go the other way. It started when she started to have health challenges in 2014. So in the in, in the regulatory industry, we sort of look at that. We, we say that's grooming the victim. Would you feel that he was grooming her? And why do you think he targeted her? Obviously, she, she was uh, vulnerable after her fall. That's right. Mark or Brian, do you guys want to opine on this particular question? I think at that point... <clears throat> He knew he had full control over um, who gets to call her, who gets to see her. She had very, 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 very close friends. And um, what she, what he was doing was he was um, excluding access to uh, Ms. Goldstein. Uh, and at one point, for example, when she, after the fall uh, and she was in the hospital, uh, Fred showed up and one of the, her neighbors who she knew for years and took care of her and, and, and talked to her and confided in her every day. She saw, uh, this gentleman there and she said, who are you? 
And he said, oh, I'm, I'm Fred Hill. And uh, what are you doing here? And he said, well, you know, I've known him for all these years, for 20 years or whatever. And then she looked at him and she says, I, I, that's impossible. She's never even mentioned your name. I've never seen you. But they, she has photographs all over her apartment of us, of her neighbors and her neighbor's kids. But there isn't a single photograph of you, Mr. Hill. So who, who, you, who are you? And uh, he became a little belligerent at that point, And they argued. Uh, and she became very, very suspicious that there was something going on and uh, this man was taking advantage of her. And what he did was from that point on, basically, he limited or excluded and even had even had uh, Ms. Goldstein tell these people, her neighbors on the phone, I don't need your help anymore. I have Fred. Fred is taking care of all of my needs now, so I don't need your help anymore. So thank you very much. And so her whole demeanor, her affect, everything changed. She was a different person and uh, no longer yeah, cheerful and happy, but seemed, uh, you know, seemed to be upset, uh, but couldn't really express it because she was under, under undue influence that was being created and caused by Fred through his whole grooming process over many, many years. And he do had got, th- yes. Do you think at any point that he actually truly cared about her or was this, is there a feeling that he was just grooming her for the victimization as a whole? He was looking at her as a business prospect, um, as a client more than anything else. And once he saw his opportunity to really make his move, he took it. And he took it in many different ways. He put himself on her, on her accounts. Um, he made himself the executor, uh, of her will. Um, he made his kids beneficiaries under her will. Uh, after she removed, she had, uh, uh, the, the friend, the attorney friend, uh, removed the sister, uh, from the will. So basically riding around of everything and put everything and gave everything to Fred and his family. I think it's a very good question that you asked, Lynn, because sometimes it's really you're really not sure about what the ultimate sort of intent of people like Fred are. You would naturally assume that someone who has known someone for 20 years would definitely not take advantage of them. But but what we found is that's not always the case. And if you look really deeper about sort of Fred in his relationship with Mrs. Goldstein, what you'll see is that he ultimately, it appears that he ultimately had a clientele for older people all anyway, because his initial relationship with Mrs. Goldstein was the result of work that he had done for another older person who had broken her hip. Right? And so we don't know ultimately what work he did for her because we got case so many, so many years later. But what we do know is that her friends and family, her friends who lived in the building with her, knew nothing of Fred up until the year or two before she died. So if he was such a quote-unquote friend, he would have kept all of her friends very close it's, it's just very strange that her close friends knew nothing of Fred until he swooped in when she fell. 
So to answer your question, perhaps this was more of a business relationship. She just happened to live 25 years longer than perhaps he estimated. So you had mentioned that the sister was cut out of the wheel. Can you tell us a little bit about her sister? Was she older, younger? Where did she live? And when did she find out about Fred? I believe the sister found out. Uh, remember, she was in Sweden. When after the victim, Miss Goldstein, passed, uh, she had her, her, her assets were to be properly or legally given to the sister in Sweden. Well, what happened was the sister in Sweden was notified by a, a financial company that they weren't sure who the beneficiary was. They had the victim showing her assets, her will, and her, her estate shows that the money should have gone to the sister in Sweden, but they also see a change in the beneficiary. And the change was going to Fred and his family. So the financial company felt a little, you know, in the middle with that, and they didn't know how to make a decision with it. So they created an interpleader at a local U.S. district court in Baltimore, Maryland, to determine who was the true, accurate, correct beneficiary in this case. And that's when they had to notify the sister in Sweden to advise, okay, we have some legal action going on to determine the beneficiary. So that's when she actually learned about it. And can and can you give us an idea of the amount that the estate was estimated to be worth? Approximately a half a million. You had mentioned that um, Fred had gotten an attorney to make these changes in the power of attorney, um, put him on her bank account. Do we know if the attorney ever suspected any wrongdoing? Uh, was he complicit in this? We'll, we'll sidestep that question about the attorney. However, the attorney and Fred were good, good friends and business partners in the past. They probably had a 30-year-plus relationship, and this is how they did business. They were, did referrals back and forth. Uh, the attorney was not in the District of Columbia, <clears throat> which creates one question, but uh, the attorney did provide legal assistance to Ms. Goldstein on behalf of Fred. We actually had the um, attorney testify at trial, and certainly we asked him all of those questions related to conflict of interest. What you know? What were the ultimate wishes of Mrs. Goldstein and the like? And he testified to no surprise that he did not necessarily see a conflict of interest uh, in, in that because he said that he only shared things directly to Mrs. Goldstein. Again, this is a time, at a time um, when th that Ms. Goldstein shared everything with Fred. When uh, this took place, and I guess we're talking about 2013, 14, and even up until 15, when a scheme like this is being executed, it's pretty much they're not trying to hide anything. It's out front, and they're doing it. Did anybody like his coworkers or his family ever question him about his motives or suspect any wrongdoing that he was doing with our ill intentions with Miss Goldstein? Well, I can't speak on the family issue. I have no idea other than the fact that he uh, 
placed all of them as beneficiaries on, on, on her account. As far as on the workplace, that's the primary reason why he was terminated from his company, because they observed these changes. In other words, he violated his fiduciary responsibility as a broker-dealer by inserting his name, his family, on her documents. And they saw that, and they questioned them about that, and they did the uh, in-house type investigation, and subsequently they terminated them based on that. So that's that's where in-house but, they did see they saw the problem. But ultimately, they didn't see it until after the fact, until after Mrs. Goldstein passed away, and he submitted his uh, benefit, his claim for the for the uh, benefits, the death claim, correct, and so. It wasn't until after the fact. So they did terminate Fred as soon as they were aware of it, but it wasn't until after the fact. And that's why you, you, I think you asked, was it kind of obvious or open or clear? It was not. It was uh, Fred kept this very hidden, and he did a very good job of making sure that it wasn't challenged. If Fred, as Lila just said, did not file for that death benefit, I don't think they would have ever realized what really happened here. In many of the fraud cases that we hear about, once the perpetrator gets their hands on the money, they start spending it on personal expenses, living lavishly, changing their lifestyle. But in this particular case, was he planning on just getting the the estate in his name and his family's name, or was he ever using any of their any of her personal money at the time to pay his own expenses or to increase his lifestyle? He, he actually, he actually, what he did was he took, uh, um, um, maybe Lila or, or, or Mark can correct me if I'm wrong, but approximately, I believe it was $40,000 of the victim's money and used that to pay for his son's, uh, education. And he claimed that this was something that, um, that Mrs. Goldstein wanted him to do when she was alive and asked him to take care of it. Of course, you know, she couldn't, she couldn't say one thing at all, whether or not she did or didn't because she was dead. She was deceased. She wasn't available, but he, he claimed he took that money and he uh, took that money to pay for his education. And that's one instance where we did see a, a quite a, quite a bit of money going out from her account. Uh, and being used for his own purposes. Prior to her passing, did Ms. Goldstein ever express any concern about Fred and what he was doing? No. Remember, Fred was kind of her uh, kind of go-to go-to guy, savior, or you know, I mean, it was basically a very. I can't speak for Ms. Goldstein because she's not only you know she's gone. But Fred apparently had a very, very strong influence over her when I said to you she lived 50 years in the same building in D.C. and had a long list of friends and neighbors. And for some reason, it all shifted. And it shouldn't have. It, it just shouldn't have. She had too many people in the community that could help her and would love to. But for whatever reason, after her fall, everything changed. He became the gatekeeper. Exactly. So after Miss um, Goldstein passed away, what ultimately um, drew the concerns of the company that he was working for for them to um, fire him? 
Um, can you kind of elaborate like what he was doing? Well, no, he immediately filed for that uh, the five hundred thousand dollar death claim. That he wanted to get his hands on that money, and once he did that, the company that alerted the company. Remember, she's passed. The company realized this man has violated his fiduciary responsibility to his client. It was a clear violation, and they did, as I said, they did an investigation, and they terminated him based on that. But they didn't stop. The money was still flowing. A secondary financial company uh, looked at the scenario, was aware of the financial irregularity going on here, and that's how the case wound up in the U.S. District Court, because no one wanted to touch it. He was claiming the whole amount of money and basically pushing the elder sister out out of it completely. And you mentioned that someone had reached out to the sister explaining that there was some confusion over who the beneficiary was. Was the right. sister shocked at this when she found out there was a, a discrepancy? Well, I can't speak for her. I didn't speak to her directly, but I'm sure she would have been. Yes. <laughs> Well, yeah. So what we ended up doing is we ended up, she ended up being represented by an attorney who assisted with um, fighting to get her money, essentially. And so we were able to speak with the sister's attorney in Sweden and find out a little bit more information about the sister. And ultimately, what we learned is that the, the two sisters, number one, were very close. And it was always their intention to leave each other, whoever passed away first, leave each other um, whatever they had remaining. Um, even until 2014, the sister's name, even though she was in Sweden, was on Ms. Goldstein's bank account because that's the way they wanted it. It wasn't until Fred got involved that those things started to change. And so... Ms. Goldstein's sister was actually in grave health at the time that she first became became aware of um, the Ms. Goldstein's uh, death, and it, it it may have had some effect on her. You know, her baby sister has passed away, and so as far as sort of fighting it in the light, she had her attorney, you know, work. Her attorney did an excellent job of communicating with us and working to help get. Um, move forward with the case. So, out of the five hundred thousand dollar estimated estate, was he only able to get the forty thousand dollars that he used for his son's college fund? That forty thousand dollars, I believe, didn't wasn't part of that. That was forty thousand dollars. I think she had a money market account at a local bank here, and uh, I don't think I'm not sure if anyone mentioned it. But what happened was uh, Fred got. On her signature cards, Fred had access to her all her all her financial instruments and accounts. So all he had to do was just withdraw the money, and that's what he did. He just withdrew the money. Uh, he, he also had a, a, I believe, it was a durable power of attorney, also that she gave him over everything. Uh, he also, after her death, this is also somewhat important. After her death, okay, he, with his power of attorney. Uh, he went to her bank where she kept a safe deposit box. On that card, for the access to the box was only given to her and to her sister. So what he did, obviously, was he took the power of attorney, which was extinguished already upon her death, didn't bother to tell the bank that, you know, she was dead and this piece of paper is worthless. 
somehow got access and raided her safe deposit box too after her death. Yeah, she he he ultimately took all of, anything that she had financially. She he ultimately um got control over. So that includes the beneficiary of almost half a million dollars until it was stopped. But you know that was his intent. He tried to get that initially, and he actually he received the funds. Yeah, he was gonna he was gonna clean her out. I mean, he was gonna take the five hundred thousand dollars in any investments. She had annuities. She had money market accounts. She had different types of accounts. So at this point, Fred had access to everything upon her death. So did he have time to spend any of that money prior to the investigation? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what happened was because the sister, so the, as I mentioned, the sister had an attorney in Sweden. And so they came, they had to come to the District of Columbia and file a claim in the District Court of Maryland to stop um, the release of the funds to Miss to Fred. And so, as you can imagine how court proceedings happen, she's, she's well in her 80s as well, um, and she just could not keep flying back and forth in order to sort of fight this. So ultimately, a settlement occurred in which the sister um, agree to just accept half of what she was ultimately entitled to. And the other half, which was still over $250,000, went to Fred. And that's where we came in and said, no, 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 you're not even entitled to that. And so we stepped in and um, asked that, um, that, that he pay restitution for that amount. How did he react to learning that he was actually being investigated by you guys? I didn't, I didn't approach him because we wanted to get him before the hearing. Uh, there was a lot of uh, issues going on around him that we decided to kind of get him before the hearing officer and proceed. Did he cooperate with the investigation throughout it? No. No. What kind of hurdles did you guys face during the proceedings? Well, we faced several hurdles. One of the hurdles involved um, making sh- you know where are all the assets? Getting the assets as it relates to we didn't want to just see Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Goldstein's accounts. We wanted to look at his account because we wanted to see whether there was a broader problem there. So there were hurdles as it related to that. Additionally, at the time, all of a sudden, Fred starts to have air quotes, his own health challenges. And he says that he has emotional stress because all of these regulators are coming after him. And so literally the day before one of our first status conference hearings, he was unable to appear. The hearing officer got so upset with him at one point that he required that the medical professional that he was seeing provide an affidavit attesting to his unwellness. And so this is even before we get to a hearing, because initially he wanted to settle. But, okay, if he wanted to settle because he wanted this all to go away. We were unable to settle because he would never open up his books. He would never share sort of his accounts with us. 
So we're not going to settle with someone that we don't know what's, what's happening. And certainly, we want to make sure she gets all of her money back. So in addition to claiming to be a pauper, claiming to uh, have, air quotes, medical issues, and um, claiming to always never be available, there were some challenges that made the hearing process take longer than it normally would. So you talk about a hearing. Was there a trial, and did he ever testify during that trial? Yes. Um, in the District of Columbia, this was this was an administrative hearing. It was the same as a trial. He did, in fact, testify. And do you think that served in his favor, or was that a detriment to him himself? I don't know what he thinks, but we certainly learned a lot more information from his own testimony than uh, we did without it. I think that ultimately his his testimony helped us tremendously. One of the reasons is because he was ultimately caught in many in, in many lies, for lack of a better word. So during his testimony, or even I guess after the judgment, did he show any remorse, or was he just steadfast in his innocence? He actually was very indignant about the whole process. He could not understand why we were trying to ruin his life because this is what Mrs. Goldstein ultimately wanted. In fact, he went so far far as to contact the one of our witnesses, the the attorney who worked with the Justice Department, who was a witness of ours, he ended up contacting that person's employer to file a complaint against him for testifying in our case. And so, no, he did not show any signs of remorse whatsoever. Did he say anything to his victims during this process or during this during the final sentencing? Well, we, we didn't have a sentencing process. Um, we don't have a sentencing per se. It's done. The uh, hearing officer just issues an order, but he did he did not show remorse even when he had the opportunity to. And again. The victim was already deceased by the time we went to the hearing, but he did not show any remorse for his actions. What were the details of the order? Um, like, was he able to lose his ability to participate in the securities industry or insurance industry? Yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, part of the process was uh, he lost his license to conduct insurance and securities business. So he lost his insurance license, his broker-dealer license, and he was actually ordered to pay hearing costs in the amount of $10,000 and restitution of $233,000, excuse me, um, $233,000 plus interest. So was that... That $233,000, that restitution, was that the half of the beneficiary that was paid to the sister then? That's correct. So this is just a question that pretty much I just came up with. With him being so reluctant to turn over his books, do you think that he could have possibly have had other victims besides just Ms. Goldstein? Interesting you should say that because we, during the course of this investigation, uh, we realized that there was another 
very well-to-do family up in Connecticut uh, that did business with him as well. When we subpoenaed the records, we, we picked up the name, the name and address of these folks, and we did some searching on them, come to find out they had passed, and we couldn't really do too much more research on them, but we did notify the uh, Connecticut State Police and some other authorities up in Connecticut that we suspected fraud, and Fred was uh, potentially a beneficiary of their money as well. But that's a, a different jurisdiction, so we could only refer it. So now that Fred, he cannot participate in insurance and securities, do you have any idea how he is earning a living today? His son, Speculation, has the same name. And we picked up that the son, we don't know if he's licensed or not, but we, I believe he is. And he could be working through his son. So it's the difference between junior and senior. What was the final impact that you would say this had on Ms. Goldstein's family? I mean, uh, the sister had been planning to receive those benefits. Were there uh, long-term impacts for her on this? I think this was a horrible experience for that family. And uh, we we all felt very bad and we had a positive outcome. But uh, the sister in Sweden and, and what she had to go through just to protect her interests, I mean, first of all, there was no real reason for her to go through all this under normal circumstances. But Fred made sure that he made this woman's life miserable. And luckily, the court did a split. They pled to that. But he was trying to take all, and I do mean all, of Miss Goldstein's assets. So this type of fraud um, that we see here, this was securities fraud, and it was also financial exploitation of the elderly. For our listeners, can you go into a little bit of detail as to why this was considered financial exploitation of the elderly? Well, in the District of Columbia, the mayor, Mayor uh, Muriel Bowser, and our, our, our commissioner, Karima Woods, are very uh, focused on protecting senior citizens in the District of Columbia. So because uh, Ms. Goldstein was a senior at the time, we uh, focused on any type of abuse of seniors, particularly financial abuse, within our jurisdiction. This one is an unusual case, and we look constantly, that's part of our mission, to look for examples, allegations, complaints, or anything that comes in uh, from any sorts, uh, we, will, we will pursue it. In this case, we, we fortunately we were successful in this case, but obviously there, there there are other cases out there. Yeah, additionally, in the District of Columbia, you know, financial exploitation is defined as the illegal or improper use of it, of an older person's funds. Uh, so, you know, we know from our investigations that financial exploit, exploitation can take many different forms, uh, but it also includes sort of the abuse of a trusted relationship through deception. And so undue influence, coercion, it's a special type of financial exploitation. Um, and in, 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 in the end, it's sort of, it's something that an older person loses their free will to make their own decision. And that's sort of what we determined here. Yeah, these are, <clears throat> these are all the red flags that we, we see in these types of cases. The alienation of the victim from friends, someone's taking uh, care suddenly of all the affairs, uh, doesn't appear to, uh, to let her uh, go out or call or speak to people when they call her. 
um, and um, you know, and, and health begins to worsen. And as all of this is is going on, uh, the situation um, it, it really calls for some action to be taken. When you see these red flags as early as possible, and not everybody knows what they can do, but if somebody, a good friend, for example, sees this happening, they should contact uh, Adult Protective Services, APS, we call it, and let them know because they will go and, and they will investigate it. And if they do and they find that there is uh, elder financial abuse, uh, they will make the proper referrals uh, to us and to other uh, and law enforcement as well to take appropriate action against the, the wrongdoer. And sort of following up on Nick's question about the type of fraud this is, with it having been referred by a friend, uh, someone she cut her hair, and all of us who have our hairdressers, we know how close we get to them. Um, would this also be considered a form of affinity fraud, being that that's how she was referred to this person? The classic example, I mean, she doesn't belong to a class, per se. You know, a, a client doesn't, I guess a client could be a form of a class of person. You know, typically when we think of a affinity fraud, they belong to a sort of class of associations, church members, or fraternities, sisters or brothers, or, or in this case, they were uh, clients or older, o- older, older people. So in a way, I, I think it is a swarm of affinity for it because he used his relationships with people to get close to like, in fact, what came out in the hearing is, which was very interesting is testimony that came out that Ms. Goldstein, she did not trust everyone. So the very referral of a friend of hers was all she needed. If, if, if that person was friends with this client, and she was friends with that client. That was good enough for her. She she wasn't the type that was going to do background research like some of the people that we do now. No, she did it. He did what the client felt was a good job for that person's mother. And so that was good enough for her. You talk about doing background research. Was there anything in Fred's background, prior criminal records or professional background, that would have raised some concerns had she done that research? routinely conduct criminal background checks on subjects to see what other type of uh, activities they were involved in. Uh, there were some other issues. I'm not sure if we want to be discussed, but it, it's kind of connected or related to the same violation. These are the types of crimes that will not draw attention typically. I think that's the biggest point. These types of crimes, the, the person is dead. They don't have any other family members. So it goes unsuspected to, to that, that, you know, a, a death benefit or a, for a bank that someone that's been on her account for 10 years or in this case, it's only a couple of years, but someone that has known a person for a while that they then, you know, sort of ultimately end up with stuff. I, I suspect that there are several, that there are a community of older people who are being taken being taken advantage of in this manner by people like Fred. Can I add to what Lila just said? Keep in mind, Ms. Goldstein was deceased. Another <laughs> angle or perspective we can look at it, let's assume that she wasn't, and she was embarrassed. She was ashamed. She was afraid. Uh, a guy like Fred can intimidate. 
So even if the victim was alive and it happens, the victim still won't cooperate or inform authorities or the appropriate authorities to assist them. They just won't do it. And you can kind of understand why. Look at the age, look at the, the vulnerabilities. So it, it's bad either way. In this case, the victim is deceased, but even if she was alive, uh, I'm not sure if she would come forward and say two words against Fred. I doubt it. And this is the type of case that a prosecutor, a criminal prosecutor, uh, is not uh, eager to prosecute because you, the victim is dead. They can't get any information from the victim. It becomes a circumstantial case and not a, a very strong case and possibly not a winner. So many prosecutors will not take this type of a case for that reason. And I think it needs to be said, too, that when we go out, especially those of us who work in the outreach programs, when we go out and we talk about the red flags, which you all have laid out beautifully on what to watch out for. Um, one of the biggest things that strikes us on this case is that one of the biggest red flags that you can see is if the person is not registered or their products are not registered and they're not and they're not licensed to um, issue securities or sell securities. That's not the case with Fred. He was actually a licensed insurance agent and securities agent. So if somebody would have even checked into his background as far as uh, his insurance record or even securities, was there anything that could have possibly have made concern for a potential customer? No. Yeah. You know, no, not at all. Yeah, but, you know, but, you know, I think what is being recommended for older people right now is that as you start to age, make put alerts on your accounts for your family members so that if changes start to happen to your account, say your bank account, or your insurance account, they have to call someone to verify it. So these are sort of the recommendations that we as regulators are making to older clients so that if, if those things happen, this type of case wouldn't have necessarily happened. Right. A trusted person would be called by, by, by the um, company uh, or the agent, uh, whoever, if they're for example, the, we see these cases happen also in the uh, romance schemes uh, where somebody sends a lot of money abroad or wires, wants their money, account money wide abroad. They call a trusted member, a trusted person uh, to explain what's about to happen. And, you know, if there's anything they can do to persuade that person otherwise. So there's a chance to stop it before it happens. <laughs> These are great tips, uh, great warning signs to watch for. Uh, can you think of any others that you would want to share with consumers that, you know, could end up being victims if they aren't really being alert? Well, you're, you know, everyone should know there are conflicts of interest rules in place for a reason. You don't necessarily want your insurance broker to also necessarily um, refer your um, refer your beneficiary uh, plan person to you. And you just want to make sure that there aren't any kind of conflicts in, involved. Uh, you want to make sure that the person that's working on your behalf has your best interest at heart. I think that's the, the key. And to the extent that you can have people assist you with that, I think that's important too. 
to know. Well, is there anything that you would like to add about this case that maybe that you've um, haven't mentioned? Well, I think at DISB, we do have various advocacy programs. We go to local uh, senior citizens. Uh, communities, we go to churches, we go to synagogues, and we go, we go to the seniors and we try to at least inform them and educate them of potential problems. And they, they really love it because they, they really want to hear, uh, what's really going on. But the bottom line is that you got to get people to get involved. You got to get them to act. And that's sometimes that's difficult to do for them, but you've got to get them to act. And if you can get them, and I think Lyle and Brian are both saying the same thing about the buddy system. If, if you can get that established, I think that can kind of help out. At least get a, a, a second pair of eyes, a second pair of ears, and let somebody else take a look or listen to what's really going on here. Because as investigators, we don't, we can't get involved unless the complaint comes to us, and that's that's the that's the bottom line. So we have to get it to surface some kind of way, and you have to rely on, unfortunately, the victim. And in this case, the victim wasn't alive. Correct. And by the time the complaint comes to us, it, it could be already too late. Unfortunately, fortunately, in this case, we were able to help. But it's not that way in every case. Okay, well, the best way for someone to check the background of a person making the investment offer is to go to NASA.org. That is N-A-S-A-A dot org. Click contact us and then click contact NASA member to choose your jurisdiction's regulator. Being an informed investor means having a plan and understanding each of your investments. Whether you're new to investing or you're already investing, NASA and its members provide a variety of online investor education resources for investors of all ages. Go to NASA.org for more information on how to be a wise and safe investor. Well, thank the three of you for joining us and for the work that you do to protect the investors. And that is it for today. And from Montgomery, Alabama, I'm Nick Bondaroo. And from Olympia, Washington, I'm Lynn Peters. If you have any questions about today's episode or would like more information about the topics discussed, you can email us at realliferegulators at gmail.com. And if you'd like to hear future episodes, please hit the subscribe button.